electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, Amazon delivers that split with next day results, what this signals for the company, investors, and other big tech names. Disney employees say the magic has died. Bob Chapek tries to script his own legacy, and shareholders push back against the company's silence. Plus, MongoDB surging nearly 19% after results. The CEO is going to join us later on this hour. Dave? We're going to start, Carl, with that 24-1 stock split and $10 billion buyback from Amazon. It is one of the few spots of green among tech this morning. Shares up nearly 5%, coming down a little bit from those after-hour peaks. It is an unusual move, we should note. Amazon under Bezos has prided itself on being customer-obsessed. It has invested nearly every dollar back into the company. Profitability has come second. So does this suggest that we could be seeing a more shareholder-focused, more shareholder-friendly CEO in Andy Jassy? That is a point that many analysts have noted. Noted this morning. Now, a stock split, of course, doesn't create any new value, but how the company framed it was important. A spokesperson said that it would, quote, give employees more flexibility in how they manage their equity and make shares more accessible for people looking to invest in the company. So Jassy could be responding to the pressure from a sagging stock price by targeting retail investors. Also, what that stock underperformance has meant for hiring and retaining employees. As for the buyback, $10 billion, guys, represents less than 1% of the company. And anyways, it's not guaranteed that they do all of it. But again, it could suggest that Jassy sees value here and put a greater focus on profitability and thus shareholder friendliness. Uh, John, certainly, you know, Bezos is still there, still involved, but... I do think that this is sort of an important shift that we are seeing from Amazon, and that is sort of that attention to shareholders. Jassy, of course, taking over at a time when regulators are circling, um, when there's more competition for talent, and notably, shares have been under pressure. Yeah, Dee, I I hear what you're saying. Um, You know, the shareholder friendliness is one of those terms that gets used on Wall Street a lot, but... It reminds me of that line in The Princess Bride about that word, does it mean what we think it means? I mean, uh, people who have been holding Amazon shares for a long time probably feel like Amazon's been pretty shareholder friendly. But um, I think it does call into question how much uh, attention Amazon is paying to the current level of the stock price. And uh, something that you noted, I think, uh, or alluded to, is the employee piece of this. Amazon, uh, even more than a lot of big tech companies, tilts a big proportion of compensation of employees toward equity, toward stock. And boy, if you got to sell it in almost $3,000 chunks, that doesn't give you a lot of flexibility. So perhaps for a company that's been ramping up, you know, expanding the workforce pretty quickly uh, and and dealing with tightness in the labor force, Carl, uh, that is a consideration. Um, But it also might signal that in 2022 and a bit beyond, they perhaps don't feel as much 
pressure to spend on overtime, on COVID mitigation, things that were really, really expensive. Maybe at least they feel like they have their arms around the scope of that expense and can therefore afford to do things like this with their cash. Yep, uh, that's certainly uh, the view from some on the street today. Obviously, it, it does allow you to deal with your stock-based comp uh, with, with more flexibility, but maybe it does sort of usher in a period where the hard lifting of, of investing to meet the, the demands uh, of COVID, John, uh, to yeah. get hyper-fast uh, delivery times uh, is coming to an end, and it starts to be a, a sharper focus on profitability. And hey, John, do we dare say that this is day two at Amazon? Is that necessarily <laughs> such a bad thing that they might be looking at other stakeholders? They, they are very fond of day one and saying that it's still day one. Now, up, to, up to you uh, as the investors out there to determine what day you think it is uh, for, for Amazon. But they even named their headquarters day one. Day two, that's like an insult to them. I know, uh, I know. Miles. I don't mean it as an insult. It could I know be a you positive. don't. I know you don't, but, <laughs> but we can dare say it, but don't expect to hear it out of Seattle. Uh, but sticking with stock splits, Dom Chu now has more on the historic impact for big tech, specifically Apple, uh, historically, Dom? So, so I, I guess I was listening intently to the conversation, and, and a lot of this focus on, on Amazon and the stocks, but might be because what it could do is promote, again, that retail investor coming in a little bit more, that, that liquidity being brought in. And, and just to that point, I was checking an online brokerage on Amazon trading shares right before I got on air right now, and the bid-ask spread on a roughly $3,000 stock is very small. It's about $1.75. But on Apple shares, it doesn't exist. It trades 30 million shares on average a day, Apple does, versus the three to four million shares a day that Amazon does. So with more trading comes tighter spreads. Maybe that's part of the big story there as well. But if you take a look at Amazon compared to Apple, we know that Apple had a four for one stock split back in July of 2020. They announced it then and it happened back, you know, towards the you know, latter part of August there. If you look at the performance on Apple on that first day, when they announced the split, the shares went up about 10 percent in one day because of that maybe sentiment shift there on a 35 percent basis up over the next month, 39 percent over the next six months and 54 percent over the course of the next year. And to kind of put that in context, the stock splits to Deirdre's point earlier don't change the fundamentals of the company. They still have to do things to generate revenues and profits. But if you look at a chart of Apple over the course of that two year span, Generally speaking, it may seem not like a lot here, but this is kind of where that 10% one-day jump was, and then it was kind of off to the races over the course of the next two years for Apple shares. Again, not driven purely because of the stock split, but Apple certainly getting a boost because those shares have become more accessible. And by the way, there's a lot of talk of Apple. Remember, it is a Dow component. It couldn't have been a Dow component pre-split. Does Amazon become more attractive as a possible speculative Dow component if its shares are only roughly about 140, 150 bucks? That remains to be seen, Deirdre. That's the reason why a lot of people are buzzing about the Amazon split. Yeah, or Apple. Alphabet, right, right now a contender too. Dom, thank you, you so much. Uh, we said that Wall Street liked this move and amid the stock split, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Evercore are all maintaining Amazon as their top pick for 2022. One of those analysts joins us now, Evercore ISI, head of internet research, Mark Mahaney. Mark, it's great to have you. Um, continue on this discussion. I mean, my question to you is, why now? Why is Amazon doing this stock split now when there's been calls for them to do this and plenty of reason for them to do it in the past? Do, what does this say about Andy Jassy's leadership in Amazon at this moment? You know, Deirdre, I actually think the more interesting thing is the share buyback that they're actually putting capital to work to buy back stock. This is the first time in a decade 
that Amazon has bought back stock. They disclosed it a little bit in the 10K they put out. So they bought about a billion back mm-hmm. in January, early February. And what we just learned last night is that they bought a billion more. That's a that's chump change in terms of the total amount of cap, uh, cash, the capital the company has. But it's a signal. And what this company does, they have a process internally where they, they always have a price at which they're going to buy their stock if it gets below that price, that where, they, where they view the stock as screamingly cheap. They didn't do it in the last decade. That says something about how they thought about their value. Uh, and that says something today about how they think about their value. I think the signal is strong. I think public investors are seeing that. And this is a year in which, you know, you talk about Apple trading up 50% posted stock split. I think actually this is exactly what's going to happen. With I think it's possible that this happens with Amazon. You've just finished your major investment cycle. You're going to have margins ramp mm-hmm. this year. Those advertising dollars, AWS dollars are coming in to ramp up margins too. I think this is a great opportunity to buy Amazon. Yeah. And you just got your signal last night. And those advertising dollars. Speaking of, Mark, they actually um, broke out that advertising segment for the first time last quarter. And it all feeds into our conversation earlier. Is Amazon becoming more shareholder friendly? What does that mean for the long term of a company, like I said, that has prided itself on this relentless focus on the customer? Well, I like what John Ford said earlier. You know, shareholder-friendly companies are companies that have their stocks go up. That's how investors think about it. I think this is one of the best mixed shift stories in tech. You know, it's fastest-growing businesses are higher margins. Structurally, margins are going up. Even in a major investment cycle like they had the last two years, margins were 5%. If you had done that investment cycle five years ago, the margins would have been 2%. So this business is scaling. Through every one of these cycles, they're scaling to higher margins. And the most interesting data point to me that came out of all of that advertising disclosure Get this. Amazon generates more ad revenue than YouTube, and it's growing faster than YouTube. It's kind of one of those data points that's in plain sight. But when you see that, you realize how big advertising is at Amazon. And they're just now starting to tap into display brand advertising with this NFL content they're going to have in the in the fall. Like all of the money so far, ad money so far has been performance marketing, kind of Google-esque money. Now they're going after the brand dollar. So you could see these growth rates remain premium at advertise at Amazon for quite some time, and it's got wonderful implications for margins. Uh, hey, Mark. Uh, good morning. It's John. So, th- tell me more about your thoughts about the possibility of a major investment cycle being over. It seems like with Amazon, th- there's a new investment cycle, pretty major, that could always be right around the corner. And I wonder how you balance that possibility versus just the possibility that that lumpiness and unexpected costs related to. COVID related to labor, that that might be over and that might be why they feel uh, more comfortable setting aside this money and buying back stock? Well, I'll give you two points, John. One is I may be wrong. If I'm wrong that the investment cycle is over, it's going to be because they super accelerate their investments in grocery. You know, recently they shut down. They announced they were going to shut down their Amazon bookstores, their uh, four-star stores. But they are switching those dollars over to groceries, and it's possible that they're going to go through a major investment cycle there. I don't think they are, but that's possible. That could be where that could be where I'm wrong. But where I think I'm right is the last two years had a dramatic, dramatic, like two to four x increase in infrastructure in distribution centers, and they've now said for the first time in three years that they've got excess capacity. I mean, that's the first time I think you're going to see their their capex slow down materially this year. I think the, the amount that they spend on building out those uh, those nodes to do this same day delivery, super same day delivery, that's going to slow. That's going to that's going to allow that's what's going to allow the margins to to ramp up. I had this exchange with the CFO in the last earnings call. That was my strong takeaway. Margins are going up this year. Uh, Mark, how much uh, headwind are you expecting? Not just from Europe uh, and uh, any, any part of Western Europe or, or the Middle East. And then uh, currency. I mean, is that going to be something we're going to talk about in earnest on this next round of earnings prints? 
Yeah, so maybe three three things just to tick them off. You know, first is going to be these inflationary uh, risks, uh, and Amazon's already called this out. You know, it's trucking services are more expensive for them, and employees are more expensive in raw input like steel for all those distribution centers they built out. So that's already in a model. We think they can absorb those costs, but that's going to be a headwind. Currency, of course, we already saw that in the uh, the guidance, and then. Western Europe, look, that's uh, 20 to 30 percent of their revenue. If Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine expands, and we hope it don't, but, it, but if it does expand, okay, then uh, that's going to negatively impact uh, Amazon. No question about it. That is risk. Mark Mahaney, thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Deirdre. We turn now to another CEO trying to make his mark on the company, and that's Bob Chapek of Disney holding its annual shareholder meeting, facing some backlash for not taking a stand against Florida's so-called don't say gay bill and also signaling a number of changes from the Iger era. Uh, Julia Borston with more on what we heard from Chapek, the stock flat since he became CEO uh, last February. Hi, Julia. Well, Carl, under attack for failing to come out in opposition to that don't say gay bill in Florida, Bob Chapek giving some insight into how he's different from his predecessor, Bob Iger, who tweeted against that bill last month. Chapek saying that they chose not to take a public position because they thought it would be more effective to work behind the scenes with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Now, this is just the latest example of how Chapek is handling his role differently than his predecessor did. Now, since Iger left as executive chairman at the company at the end of last year, Chapek announced plans to launch an ad-supported, lower-cost version of Disney+. Plus. Whereas under Iger's watch, Disney+, Plus was focused on remaining ad-free. And as Disney Plus looks to reach a bigger audience, Chapek said in Disney's earnings call that it is exploring more general entertainment programming and executives are reportedly discussing moving into the horror and thriller genre with some of those series. Now at ESPN, Chapek is encouraging his executives to explore more opportunities with sports betting as it is legalized in more states. This after the sports giant held back in this sports betting arena for many years. So this moment, guys, is a real litmus test for Chapek in terms of both how he takes a stand and also how he decides to pursue growth. Yeah, Julie, we've been talking about this for a while now. You know, how, how wide is the tent of the Disney brand? I mean, it, people remember when uh, Eisner uh, started Touchstone and created a whole new uh, realm of content that could fall under the Disney brand, maybe not the Disney label, but certainly under the corporate umbrella. Yes, and remember, so of course, Disney has star overseas, and so that's been a place where they can explore more general entertainment content. Here they have Hulu, but they still don't control Hulu entirely. There's still that piece that's owned by Comcast, but we expect them to work that out um, pretty soon and figure that out. But there's the sense of whether Hulu is going to be much more of that general entertainment umbrella. Um, but the question is, what does Disney want Disney Plus to be, right? Is Disney Plus going to be a replacement for linear television, you know, packaged together with Hulu? Or do they really want the Disney Plus brand to really be about kids and family and then have that broader package with Hulu and ESPN Plus be the way they bring in everyone else? Yeah, bringing in the horror and thriller genre, Julia, would certainly be sort of a departure from what we think of it as now. And I wonder if they were going to do that, expand sort of their audience, would they do that organically? Do they have the studios and the tools to do so? Or would they make another acquisition? We know that they've been so successful in picking out great studios and franchises. 
You know, they absolutely do have this, the, the studio and the skill set to do so because of that Fox acquisition, Deirdre. So in acquiring Fox, they, they got Fox Searchlight. They got that whole studio. And look, they've already been moving slowly into this arena. You know, they've taken the Star Wars brand uh, and, and they've been doing some of these series, including the upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi series. So, yes, it's all about that Star Wars franchise, but it's not for kids. This is sort of, sort of supposed to be a little bit more mature and sophisticated content. Uh, and they're trying to do that with some of the Marvel stories as well. So they're going to be pulling back some Marvel series that were more mature um, back from Netflix over to Disney. And this is all part of the same thing of building on those brands, but also trying to reach the widest audience possible. All right. Julia, thanks. And David Acheria, CEO of MongoDB, is coming up after the break. Stock jumped nearly 19% yesterday, taking a breather today. And Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Time for a gut check on CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity firm posting a beat in its latest earnings. Revenue coming in $431 million, EPS of $0.30, cents. tops consensus with its guide and for the quarter and the year. Street does like what they see. BTIG ups to uh, from neutral to buy. JMP reiterating its market outperform. And DA Davidson remains to buy, although they do cut their price target. Shares are surging on those results. John, one of the very few winners on the tape this morning. Yeah, this morning, but hey, yesterday, <laughs> MongoDB, uh, a winner as well. The database platform company is down slightly this morning after a double-digit rise yesterday following those fourth quarter results. Stock, like a lot of growth stocks, has been struggling, losing more than a third of its value year to date. Joining us now on the state of the company, enterprise software spending, MongoDB CEO Dave Itacheria. Dave, good to see you. So, um, Strong quarter, which we've been used to seeing from you guys lately, but what really caught my eye, the 2,000 net new customers in Q4, more than 100 of which uh, are spending at 100,000 plus uh, annualized recurring revenue uh, kind of run rate. The, the big customers, what, what's driving their activity with you? Thanks, John. It's nice to be here. Um, first of all, I would tell you that um, what customers are basically indicating is that they view MongoDB as an increasingly strategic platform. You talked about six-figure customers. Our seven-figure customer count grew nearly by 70% also year over year. So people really view MongoDB as a truly strategic platform to drive their innovation agenda and build applications that transform their business. So uh, even given that, how much time are you and the management team spending thinking about Europe 
right now, either direct exposure to companies that have a lot of their business there or companies based there, as we're uh, increasingly hearing concerns about economic slowdown because of the war in Ukraine? Yeah, first of all, my thoughts are with the people of Ukraine. It's a really tragic situation. From a business point of view, our exposure is quite minimal. We have uh, in the low single-digit millions of revenue coming out of Russia for a billion-dollar business. That's not really material. But uh, we're trying to do our part to um, uh, contribute to helping the people of Ukraine. But there's no real business impact, and we're not seeing any impact on our forecasts from Europe. David Sierdre, I want to ask you about return to office plans. You said previously that you made it clear the expectation is that employees will return to their offices. Your headquarters is in New York. You've got offices all over the place, including not far from here in San Francisco. Are you seeing a difference in willing in employees' willingness or desire to come back based on where offices are versus New York versus a San Francisco, for example? Yeah, we definitely we believe the world will never come back to the pre-COVID days of everyone being in the office five days a week. But we believe a hybrid world does matter. It does is the most effective way to run the business. So there's some employees who will be in the office five days a week. There's some employees who will always be remote. But most employees will have the flexibility to be in the office two to three days a week. Uh, we think that face-to-face connection, the ability to form uh, the relationships, the, to be deeply more more deeply connected to our mission, our purpose. Um, those things really matter, and those face-to-face interactions really matter. So we've created a hybrid environment. We're planning to um, come back on April 4th. Obviously, hopefully, conditions continue to open up. But we believe that's the world of the future, and our goal is to attract and retain the best people in the industry, and you have to give them a choice. Dave, can you give us some granularity on how you're able to drive the the revenue uh, momentum that you are kind of component of the workforce wise. What have you been doing in sales and marketing hiring over the past couple of years? What are you planning to continue to invest in that, that allows that to happen? And, and what besides, I guess, on the labor side is enabling that that you're also investing in? Yeah, so first of all, I just want to say that we just crossed the $1 billion revenue threshold as a company. There's not many companies who have reached that threshold. Uh, and that's over five years. Five years ago, we were a $100 million business. Um, <clears throat> second, I would say that our business is accelerating through this. A year ago, our business was growing 38% year over year. Now it's growing 56% year over year. And Atlas is growing 85% year over year. And that's a north of a $600 million revenue business. And the reason we're seeing these results, John, is that we believe marrying a great product with a great distribution is is how you have to run a B2B business. And so we, as much thought as we put into our product, our platform, and all the innovation we do there, we put just as much thought in terms of how we go to market. We have a very sophisticated go-to-market approach. We have direct salespeople at the high end. We have an inside sales organization at the, for small and medium-sized customers. And then we have a self-service business. And on top of that, we have a partner channel. This is a massive market, so you have to meet customers where they are. And so you, know, you can't just take a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's really paid dividends. Our productivity rates are incredibly high. We're seeing broad-based uh, uh, performance across every geo and every industry. And so we feel really good about the opportunity. So we're investing heavily for growth. All right. Continue to watch it. Always love to get the on-the-ground insight from you as well. David Acheria, CEO of MongoDB. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. And as we had to break, check out the NASDAQ week to date. Yesterday's 3.5% gain, that wasn't enough to keep it in the green for the week. We will break down some of the current volatility with Fundstrat's Tom Lee right after the break. We're back in a moment. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called 
writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Stocks are in the red this morning, a day after the S&P had its best day since June of 2020. Currently, session lows here. Dow's down 450. Uh, volatility is obviously the theme. Nasdaq's coming off its seventh move of more than 3% this year. Last year, that happened just five times. This morning, down better than 2% once again. We're going to talk to Fundstrat's Tom Lee in just a moment after a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Surging gas prices are helping drive another jump in inflation. Consumer prices are up 7.9% over the last year. That is the highest jump since 1982. Food costs are also up sharply. However, car prices paused their historic jump in February and actually fell slightly. Oil prices surging as much as 6% after yesterday's huge decline. They've since cooled a bit and are currently up about 1%. Unvaccinated workers at United who got exemptions will be allowed to return to work. 2,200 employees will be able to return to their jobs at the end of the month. United says about 200 workers were previously fired for refusing to get their shots. The Wall Street Journal says that they will not be asked to return. And health insurance giant Anthem wants to change its name, its plan to rebrand itself as Elevance Health to draw attention to its broader health portfolio beyond insurance. The core of the company remains its Blue Cross Blue Shield programs, which will keep their names. Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Rahel. NASDAQ may have rallied yesterday, but we're back in the red today. Our next guest does see some hope, though, says while stocks are still suffering, valuations have come in so sharply that they're no longer demanding, in his words. Joining us to discuss, Fundstrat Global Advisors Managing Partner Tom Lee. Tom, good to see you. Uh, what, do we, what do you mean by that? Valuations are no longer demanding. Uh, hey, Carl. Um, you know, when we talk, when we look at valuations, I think there's a couple of simple measures to look at. One is something like median market PE, so that you know the median stock in the S and P, and that multiples 16 and a half times forward earnings. Now, it was almost 20 times at the end of 2019. So the stock market, even though we're you know two years or three years really almost past the pandemic start. Uh, the multiples actually declined. And in terms of free cash yield, it's the same story that free cash flow yield on the median stock now is, you know, 5.8%. Um, the 10 years, you know, under 2%. So you're still getting paid a pretty hefty premium to own equity. So I know stocks are kind of in no man's land because of a lot of uncertainty, including the, the war and this sort of surge in inflation. But the fact that market valuations aren't causing you to have a huge margin of error on the downside means, I mean, I just think you can't really get that hurt if you buy stocks here over the next 12 months. 
Right. You, uh, you're beginning to spin out a bit of a narrative. I mean, Yellen's on the tape right now talking about whether or not uh, there's a path for further sanctions given uh, the horrible offensive we saw yesterday. Um, it does sound, though, that you're beginning to hear from uh, world leaders uh, the limits of sanctions because of the collateral damage. Am I right? Uh, that's right. Um, I mean, what's pretty apparent now is that the sanctions have caused oil to spike and commodity prices to spike. So it's now delivering a pretty big blow to the rest of the world. So even anyone outside the conflict is now paying the price because food and, and energy has gotten expensive. So it, it just shows you the, the sanctions are essentially becoming a game of relative pain. You know, is Russia going to suffer more pain than the rest of the world? But I'm not sure it's a great strategy to actually continue to, you know, to add sanctions that cause further inflationary pressures. Hey, Tom, it's Deirdre. Good morning. You've seen a number of hedge funds increase their cash positions. Are you, despite sort of a 7% annualized rate of inflation, is this a smart move for the average investor? Uh, you know, I, I think the foundation for the bull market is still intact. Um, you know, I, I'd say the best sort of arbiter of that is, is the yield curve has been steepening the 10-year versus 30, even the twos versus 10. And if that's the case, then what we're really experiencing, even with inflation, is uh, a spike in commodities that are now working its way through the system. And it's as painful as it is, uh, it isn't. It is very different than being in a secular structural inflation problem. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's painful now. You know, even today's CPI report, as you guys just mentioned, you know, one of the sort of glimmers is that used car prices, which was over half of that rise in CPI last year, is starting to decline. So things that were, you know, viewed as sort of enormous, enormous risk to the market in terms of continuing to add pressure are diminishing. And, and, and that could be the case for CPI really over the next 12 months. So, Tom, do you hold on to more cash? Uh, well, I think we are in uh, a no man's land for the moment. You know, our base case for first half 2022 was uh, that markets would be treacherous. This is far more treacherous than we expected. And I think it's, of course, because, you know, we're in wartime conditions. But do I think stocks will end higher from here on an absolute basis? Yes. I mean, I... I think even though we're at S&P 4,200, I think we could still exit this year with 5,100 or higher. Hey, Tom, uh, you mentioned CPI. If Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, then why isn't it trading like one? Uh, John, that's a great question. So uh, there's two ways to answer that. One is, of course, it's not a great hedge because we have inflation. Or the other is Bitcoin doesn't actually see inflation in the U.S., um, I think that's the that's what we'll know in 12 months. But it's, of course, been a great inflation hedge for people who live in countries that have had huge devaluations, you know, whether it's the Ukraine, Venezuela, Turkey, even those who own Bitcoin in Russia, they've really been shielded from the devaluation of the currency, which is which is essentially the core of why they why they're seeing inflation. But I guess it'd be even better if they could get dollars. Um, so I guess uh, that being the case, what is your expectation on the role that, that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies play going forward, particularly in light of the executive order that we got yesterday, which, of course, uh, lays out the questions to be asked more than the answers? Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, I'd say that the biggest, I think the most important way to look at this is compare this to five years ago when 
anyone would have said Bitcoin is, uh, you know, is just a piece of code or just, you know, it's a, it's a bubble or, uh, you know, it's a pure source of speculation. And today it's becoming something that even the U.S. policy Treasury Department has to figure out. I think it just shows you that crypto is, is solving some real problems. And I think the usefulness, especially outside the U.S., is, has actually been proven, especially during this conflict. So I think it's actually ultimately all good things happening. Hey, finally, Tom, um, having done so much uh, good high frequency work on COVID throughout the pandemic, it's amazing how much we are not talking about it uh, lately. I see the CDC is going to devise some guidelines. We might drop masks on public transit next month. Are you putting all of that data work in a drawer or do you expect to revisit it later on? Uh, Yeah, it's a great question. I think the best case would be for COVID to disappear. similar to other pandemics. And if that's the case, uh, that would be a great outcome. We're still compiling the data. Um, and I'd say that we'll have a better sense because you know, the, really the last place where COVID is sort of you know, raging is, is actually the Far East. And once that's done, if there's no new variant, then, you know, we, we could really hopefully just table the whole thing, like you said. It would be amazing. Uh, You definitely kept us uh, so well informed uh, for a couple of years, and we're hoping we don't have to go back to that that data stuff. Uh, Tom, thanks. We'll talk soon. Tom Lee. Thank you. After the break, another round. Elon Musk versus the SEC. Plus, take a look at the K-Web, Chinese Internet stocks, taking it on the chin today. Alibaba down 10%. We're back in two. Take a look at shares of Tesla. They are down today along with the broader markets. Shares are down about 20% year-to-date amid the plunge in valuations. So relative to some other names, that's not that bad. CEO Elon Musk has been making headlines. What else is new? Asking a federal judge to remove restrictions requiring attorney approval for his tweets. Those limits imposed as part of an SEC fraud settlement after tweeting in 2018 that he was considering taking Tesla private, quote, funding secured. Joining us now, Margins editor Ron John Roy. Uh, Ron John, before we get into what the SEC might do, why is Elon doing this right now? They've taken a relatively light-handed approach to his tweets. So why is he sort of putting himself back on the line? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the real question here. Why is he escalating it? Because they've been seriously escalating things in the last few weeks. On February 17th, Musk's lawyers sent a letter to a federal judge saying that the SEC is harassing them with these investigations. Musk has been tweeting that he's peeling back the layers of the corruption onion of the SEC, which was a great line. But, you know, he's saying he was forced into this settlement. He's saying that he's being his First Amendment speech and activity is being chilled. It really begs the question, why is this escalation happening now? Because the SEC has been completely hands off during this entire process. Think about how many tweets there have been that would have violated this agreement. I was on this show a few months ago talking about Hertz and the Tesla partnership, which shot the stocks of both companies up. And then Musk came out and said that there's no contract signed. And then, of course, there's the big one that's kind of the central question. When Musk tweeted a poll on November 6th saying that he would be selling 10% of his shares if the crowd said yes. And then the shares fell 17%. So so the SEC has been so hands-off that it makes no sense that Musk is escalating right now. 
So, Ranjan, does it maybe speak to the importance and rising influence of the retail investor? Elon Musk was first in sort of trying to speak directly to them. We know that that's very important from him. You have that move from Amazon yesterday, the stock split that they said is going to make their stock more accessible, which feels like they're talking to the retail investor. Could that be part of it? Yeah, but I do think the regulatory climate has changed, especially around retail investors. Because remember, 2018 was a different time. The Gary Gensler SEC has been much more aggressive, but most important, especially related to retail investors, the market has sold off. Think about how many companies are down 50, 80, 90 percent. And if you think about it, when everyone's making money, it's hard for regulators to regulate. Everyone's happy. It's when a lot of people have lost a lot of money that you're going to see a much bigger appetite for investor protection. And I think this time will be different. And if Musk is forcing the SEC's hand right now. Well, John, I wonder, you know, separate from obviously the compliance issues that we talk about a lot, um, the way in which uh, this commodity shock has accentuated the look at Musk and what he did logistically ahead of all of this to be in a good position if things went south. I wonder, do you give him some credit for that right now? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, why it's even more confusing, because Tesla, the company, is actually doing pretty well. They delivered a million cars last year. Their net income's on the rise. Their margins are on the rise, which is, again, even more confusing why Musk is doing this, because I see this playing out in a few different ways. Either scenario one, the SEC fights to maintain the status quo, which makes no sense because they've been hands off anyways. So scenario two, this is where things get more interesting. The SEC can start doubling down on litigation. They could say the settlement is void and that you are already violating it anyways. So let's start going back to the 420 tweet and make the investigation live again. Let's double down on the insider trading investigation. Because remember, Kimball Musk sold $100 million of Tesla the day before this Twitter poll, and that is under investigation. But I think the more extreme way this can go, and I know this might sound crazy, is Imagine if the SEC actually tries to deplatform Musk off of Twitter. And again, it almost sounds impossible, but if you can prove that a public company executive has repeatedly used a platform to break securities laws, what's to say? No one has a fundamental right to a Twitter account. So I do think it's even more telling right now that when the company is doing pretty well, that Musk would escalate things. And again, if anyone could steamroll the SEC, he's the master of Twitter. It could be Elon Musk. But I do believe the next next few weeks and months. This is a serious escalation. And if you're a Tesla shareholder, maybe you don't need to be nervous, but you at least need to be aware that this is happening because this has to escalate. He has kind of laid the cards out. Yeah, but Roger, maybe this is all sort of the plan. Like, consider with me, if you will, Elon Musk as a TV show, right? Tesla kind of famously doesn't have a PR department, but considering that, it sure gets a lot of press you know, last week or the week before the episode was Joe Biden won't talk about me. Uh, this week, it's the SEC beef. When you're lacking in product news, um, it, it sure keeps people talking about Elon Musk and Tesla. Yeah. And, and, and this is why I do think this question of what right does Elon Musk have to at Elon Musk, the Twitter account is going to become the central question. Because think about public company CEOs. There's such strict rules around corporate communications, but somehow Twitter has just slipped through the cracks and people can say anything they want. And if he is muzzled, 
more if he is deplatformed. It changes the economics of Tesla, the company, because as you said, they get hundreds of millions of dollars of free media via his Twitter account. It's this amazing vehicle for you know obtaining advantageous financing through targeting the retail investor. So the more he is actually escalating this, the more he's increasing the risk that there will be additional restrictions placed on his communications, I do think that really presents a risk to Tesla, the stock. Yeah, we'll see how it uh, plays out, Ron John, and what kind of precedent it could set for other CEOs who are becoming, you know, increasingly looser on Twitter. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Still to come this morning, we're going to look at the gender pay gap and the impact on attracting new workers in this tight labor market. As we're close to session lows, Tech Check is back in three. Let's get a gut check on JD.com. That stock tanking today despite beating expectations for its latest quarter. It's slowing revenue growth that is weighing on the share price today. JD, not the only Chinese Internet name in the red this morning. There's Pinduoduo, Alibaba and others that are sharply lower. These names dragging down the KWeb ETF, which is down by over 9 percent, a drop of more than 10.16 percent to be exact, would be its worst performance since its inception in 2013, guys, uh, which is almost surprising because of the pain that the K-Web and these Chinese names have been through over the last few years. And it's just accelerating investors, not really seeing the value despite huge drops. Yeah. Um what can we say about that, really? There was a time when we were talking about uh, Chinese domiciled stocks being uninvestable. They're increasing chunks, it seems, these days uh, in, in the markets that are of that kind of concern. Meanwhile, uh, you missed part of the show. Is your DVR broken? Do, do you like to watch with your eyes closed? Well, don't worry. You can follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. At today's Equity and Opportunity Forum, we're excited to unveil the third annual CNBC Momentive Women at Work survey. Our Julia Borston is back with the highlights. Hi, Julia. Well, Carl, we know that the pandemic had a devastating effect on women in the workplace. Two years in, 1.1 million women are still missing from the workforce, according to the National Women's Law Center. But our CNBC Momentum survey found signs of progress. Now more women are eager to advance in their careers. Nearly half of women polled consider themselves very ambitious. That's up four percentage points from 2021, though still five percentage points below the results of our pre-pandemic levels. Now about a third of working women saying they're very satisfied with career opportunities in their current job. That's back to pre-pandemic levels. And 20% of all women say their career has advanced in the past year, up six percentage points from 2021. Now part of all that ambition ties to increased dialogue with management. 32% of women polled say they talk to their manager at least monthly about their career goals. That's up seven percentage points from 2021. Now, women of color say they're seeing more progress than white women do, with 28% of Hispanic women in the workplace and 26% of black women in the workplace saying their career has advanced in the past year. That's compared to 16% of white women. And about a third of younger women, aged 18 to 34, report career advancement in the past year. That's compared to less than a fifth of 35 to 64-year-olds. Now, things still do seem tougher for moms. Nearly 30% with kids under age 18 say their career has taken a setback, and 23% say their salary is lower. But on the upside, employers can help this group achieve career goals by offering more opportunities for on-the-job training or financial support 
for further education. Guys? Julia, some really interesting color in there, especially that increased dialogue with management amid a work from home or a hybrid uh, work environment. Thank you. After this, we look at some of this morning's biggest movers ahead of a CNBC special tonight focusing on tech. Micron is down more than 6%, by the way. The SMH off by three and a half. Tech Check is back after one more break. Tech, once a safe haven in volatility, now this year's biggest laggard. The Nasdaq losing more ground than the Dow and S&P in 2022 so far. But some areas within tech worse off than others. Some cloud fintech, China tech, and direct-to-consumer brand ETFs down more than 25% year-to-date. Tonight at 6, CNBC explores the sector with a special, anchored by our own Frank Holland, who joins us now. Frank, what should we expect tonight? Hey there, John. You know, tech's really boomed during the pandemic, but now... Two-thirds of the NASDAQ is at least 25% lower than their 52-week highs. We're going to take a closer look at a wide range of stocks, including, of course, those FANG names like Netflix. And despite its year-to-date performance, why many are very bullish on the streaming giant, also some of those pandemic darlings like Zoom. Is there still more room to grow for the companies that kind of became ubiquitous with the pandemic? And, of course, we're going to look at investing in Chinese tech. Where are the opportunities? Three areas that have been directly impacted by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That's chips, the cloud and cybersecurity. We're going to talk to, about some of the biggest names in those spaces, their valuations, opportunities, and the big themes in those sectors. Also, where investors can go from here with the current landscape changing so rapidly this year so far. That and much more at 6. Tonight, I'll also be joined by Steve Kovac and Christina Partsinevelis, who cover Apple and chips, to hear what they're seeing with the companies they cover. Carl, back over to you. Uh, Frank, that's going to be a good look. Uh, obviously, it's such an important part of the market. Uh, it's been so supportive for so Absolutely. long. Uh, and investors obviously looking for uh, some perspective and ideas. Our Frank Holland, we will see you tonight. You. Uh, guys, um, even though we are close to session lows, uh, Dow down 391, uh, I would take note that oil uh, is below 109. Kind of interesting. Gas futures actually sold off a little bit. And the VIX, given all the uncertainty, it's surprising to see the VIX flirting at the moment, at least, with going red for the session. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.